Welcome to the Bike Portland podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Moss. Before we get into it this week, I want to remind everyone that Bike Portland relies on the financial support of subscribers. We are very grateful for those of you who've already stepped up and want to remind the rest of you to please become a subscriber today so we can continue to improve and expand our work. You can find out how to subscribe or advertise at bikeportland.org support. Okay, on to the episode. This week, you'll get to know a rising star in local political and advocacy circles, Ashton Simpson. At just 34 years old, Simpson is running for Metro Council, and with no challengers for his East Portland district seat, he's now, uh, we should probably start referring to him as Metro Councilor-elect Ashton Simpson. I actually didn't know that update about his campaign until he told me during the interview, so you'll have to excuse me when I say if he's elected several times. Simpson will be just the second black man to ever sit on Metro Council, following in the footsteps of Ed Washington, uh, who served in the early 1990s. It will be the start of his career as an elected official and the culmination of a whirlwind life journey that has seen Simpson bounce through many life experiences, both highs and lows, that are really more on par with someone twice his age. After growing up in tough urban neighborhoods in Houston, Texas, and dropping out of college his first go-round, Simpson found work as a mall cop. When he declined a promotion in the mall security business, his boss at the time urged him to join the Air Force, and he ended up serving stints as a civil engineer at bases around the world before moving to Portland in 2015. In the relatively short time he's been here, Simpson has worked as a project manager with a construction firm, Uh, earned a community development degree from Portland State University, been a community organizer for a nonprofit in East Portland, and has had his current job as executive director for Oregon Walks since January 2021. In addition to all that, in the past two years, he's lost several close family members to COVID and other causes. He's navigated America's racial reckoning as a young black man and has been a doting father to his nine-year-old son, who he lives with in his home in East Portland's Russell neighborhood. Given his role with uh, Oregon Walks and his volunteer activism on many transportation-related advisory committees around town, I've already interviewed Simpson several times for stories on Bike Portland, so those of you who are regular readers will be uh, will already be somewhat familiar with him. So going into this one, I wanted to learn more about uh, Ashton Simpson, the person. And so for the first half of the interview or so, you'll learn a lot about how his life has shaped his values and perspectives. The second half of the interview has more of the policy and project talk, and we touch on issues like housing, uh, I-5 freeway expansion projects, 82nd Avenue, Portland's tragic record of pedestrian traffic fatalities, and more. But as you'll, you'll hear from him, Simpson doesn't really see a fine line between projects and people. To him, you can't build up one without the other. I really enjoyed this interview, and I think you're going to love getting to know Councilor-elect Ashton Simpson. Here's our conversation. Ashton Simpson, thanks for coming down to the Bike Portland uh, cave here in the studio. Good to be here. All right. So how would you kind of like think of some memories of like being a kid and moving around, uh, you know, getting around your neighborhood? Mm -hmm. Uh, And then even, you know, later on up until now, like what's sort of your relationship, your memories with like transportation all throughout your life? Absolutely. So growing up, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I grew up 
on the northeast side of Houston, so uh, homestead area. Not a lot of sidewalks. Still not a lot of sidewalks. Uh, both my parents were uh, public transit drivers, and so I remember plenty of Saturdays and Sundays, or you know, spring breaks, actually riding my mom or dad's route and all day, just sitting on the bus all day. But when it came to like hanging out in the, in the hood and stuff, like I always was walking and biking. My grandfather, uh, his name was Freddie Sanders. He, by the time I was of age, he had retired. He worked in asbestos mines. And so he, you know, started to hit Parkinson's and Alzheimer's mix. And we went and did a lot of walking. We went to a lot of parks. And I remember vividly, you know, when I was in elementary school, because it was only like two blocks away, he would drive his truck to pick me up. And he, when I got out of school or got out of school, he would be sitting talking with a crossing guard. But I'd look in the back of the pickup truck and it was like, a you know, 1980s Ford Ranger, right? Like nothing, just what we look at now on the road. Yes. Yeah, right. Super huge. And I'd see our bikes on the back. And we would go, there was a park, uh, Titwell Park, not too far away from the school. We would go down to Titwell Park and he'd park in the parking lot and we'd just ride around, right? And then uh, as I got older, that same, I got a bigger bike, but I would hang out with my friends in, the na- in their neighborhood. And so I would ride up and down the street of Allwood and Burtwood and Flint, all these streets, right? Just connecting with my friends and going, like you said, go to the park and hoop, right? That's, yeah. That was our primary mode was foot and bike. And then when I got into high school, uh, still wasn't driving, but I I was kind of like, I got chaperones. And so, like, my stepdad and my mom would take me everywhere. And then my mom got to the point, because I was in, uh, I went to Upper Bound uh, at Texas Southern University. And so every Saturday morning, they required me to take, like, two buses to get there sometimes. Sometimes it took one if I caught the, got there on time. And uh that was that was my life around transportation because it was heavily influenced by cycling, walking, and riding transit, and that it gave me a, a a helped me give me perspective on a lot of things, but also gave me confidence to go out into the world and be able to engage with these different things without fear. Um, I think now my son has also since we moved here. So we moved here in 2015, not that long ago. And when we moved here, we moved to Tualatin and we were right on Graham's, Graham's Landing or Graham's Ferry Road, 96. And so line 96, my son knew how to get to PSU, where to get off and how to get back home on that line because he rode with me everywhere. He knew because we would talk about the journey and he was infatuated with buses. And so he was like, line 96. And I was like, yep. And so we'd get on right there in front of the house, and we'd get off at the art, right at the art museum mm. and get back on at the art museum and get right back off at home. And it was a straight shot. And that really helped shape him even now to this day at nine years old. He wants a car, but he's just like, you know, I like having transit available. Mm. Yeah. I love uh, learning of that about your past because um, you didn't know back then, obviously, that you would be working as like a, you know, a transportation advocacy professional. No and there idea. you were, you know, doing all those things. Uh, but it's also interesting because, and I want to get to it later in our interview, but how that experience where you grew up in that Houston neighborhood was similar and different to 
the place you live now, like in the Russell neighborhood uh, of East Portland. So w- I want to get into that. So, uh, but real quick, just to just to help folks with your kind of background, you you're an Air Force uh, veteran. Yes. And you, you were in like the civil engineering side. What what kind of, you, you said as you walked in, you noticed one of my maps here and you said you did some like cartography mapping related stuff. So how did you go from that to, uh, well, you worked at a construction firm, Colas, right? Mm-hmm. And then, then you got, you fell into like community planning. You got your, your degree at Portland State in community development. So like, t- take me a little bit about like, how did that transition happen from this like, you know, Air Force to the hard hat to like the books to the, you know, well, the nonprofit world? Yeah. Yeah. So it actually went military, right? And so did a lot of map making, GIS work, construction management, uh, on that side. But also readiness. I don't. I think a lot of people don't know that about me. But um, but I'm all about emergency readiness and preparedness. And, and you had like a hurricane in Houston while you were there, right? Oh yeah. Or, oh yeah. So you got some real uh, both. Uh, like uh, professional experience, job experience, and lived experience with like disasters. So we never left during hurricanes and tropical storms. We, my dad was the type board the windows and we stay put. And I, for the life of me, I would see my neighbors' houses around us flooding out. And so, I got to see the devastation it had on my neighbors and how that recovered. Even now, my mom, in her current home, she is still recovering from Harvey, but. So yeah, I, that uh, that's really interesting. Uh, but I did interrupt you. You're you're telling me kind of like how that how you ended up in the nonprofit world with Oregon Walks. It, it's a it's a roundabout funny way, but I think it's perfect for this. So uh, after I retired out of the Air Force back in 2015, I wanted to bridge my skills from being a civil engineering technician of infrastructure, but also building up communities and people. And so I traveled around the region, went to Seattle. I was like, eh, Seattle. And then I came to Portland, and I was like, this place is beautiful. I like it. I, I There was something appealing about it to me. And so I dug, dug a little deeper, and I was like, oh, Portland State University. What is this? Never heard of it. And I looked at their community development program, and I was like, that's it. That's how I'm going to bridge my infrastructure knowledge with helping communities. And so I, you know, Retired, well, I didn't retire officially until like March 30th or something like that. But I, I had enough vacation time that I left my base up in uh, Spokane, Fairchild Air Force Base back in like January 31st, 2015. And I came here, packed up everything, U-Haul truck. I drove one car. At the time, uh, my wife, we're divorced now. She drove the other car and we switched my son back and forth and we just drove down from there. And uh, I got here, got enrolled. Um, went, you know, went through all the courses, which by the way, I was, I, I will gladly say this, like we need more community developers in the community. Everybody, it should be everybody's job to be a community developer because it really, all it is, is being involved. And when you say community development, you're, you're talking, uh, building up organizational power within a community. You're, you're not developing building. You're talking about developing people, developing, going into a community that needs help, maybe getting organized, uh, having a louder voice, and then stitching that together, getting people to represent. Absolutely. Social infrastructure. Social infrastructure. Great. Yep. Got it. And you did that at Rosewood, yep. uh, right? Rosewood Initiative. So, yeah. So then uh, graduate 2017, uh you know, two years after after enrolling, couldn't find work in the nonprofit sector. So uh, I'm just out handing resumes to folks, just like trying to get a job, trying to get a job, face some discrimination, uh, 
within one company that I applied for within construction, I was out slanging resumes one day and I happened to pass by a shoe shop and I was like, oh yeah, you know, I'm a sneakerhead too. I love, I love kicks. So I was like, let me stop by and see what's going on. And as I'm looking, I look out the window and I see across the street, this coalesced construction truck. And I see these two gentlemen, very dapper, nice looking men. And I said, well, let me go see who's going on. Turns out it was Herman Colas, the founder, and Andrew Colas, the president. And I got a chance to talk with them right there on the spot. And and then we got to talking about my background. And they, I pulled out a resume and they said, well, hey, why aren't you hired yet? And I said, well, and I explained to them what happened in other with other companies. I won't name them. And they said, wow, I'm not surprised. And so two weeks later, I had an interview and I was hired. And I worked at Colas. I did uh, so a project at um, 11th and Lincoln called Abernathy Flats over on the central east side. And I began the process of the bridge housing project on uh, Williams and Tillamook. And that's when I got the call from Rosewood. And that's when the plan came together infrastructure, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. working with community. And it was perfect. So they hired me to be the community asset director uh, to help plan the community through the Rosewood Equitable Neighborhood Development Plan, which last year was funded through ARPA dollars uh, through Rep Valderrama's allocation, uh, $1.5 million. So I was very proud of that. And what that plan did was looked at the half-mile radius in and around the Rosewood area to look at the development potential of five sites to anchor and stabilize that community. Uh, and you know how nonprofits work. Um, and then, well, one, not, you know how nonprofits work, but then also COVID happened. Mm-hmm. And when COVID happened, uh, it kind of slowed that project down just a bit, but it also took away a lot of funding from my position uh, because it was a set amount of time that I had to get things done. And so uh, I sat on the board of Oregon Walks at that time as I was transitioning out and uh, I was urged to apply for the executive director position. Uh, and I did. And the board was ecstatic. They they loved the background. They loved, again, this marriage of social infrastructure with physical infrastructure and how can we improve that in communities and that I was already working on it from various things. I was already sitting on the Fixing Our Streets Oversight Committee, right? I was already involved. And that's, in, the, that's the City of Portland Bureau of Transportation Committee that is that is figuring out how to spend the, the 10 cent per gallon no. local gas tax, right? Yep. Um, I was uh, involved with EPAP, right? I was very, very heavily involved in community work. And so that's how I transitioned over. And I, I'll be honest, it's been a one of the greatest years of my life. I've started January 4th last year and the things we were able to do for the community, because that's all I care about. I care about uplifting community and making sure folks have access and are having resources allocated to their, to, to their improvement of life. So, uh, you know, outside of that, man, it, that's where I'm at. And that's how I got here. It's, it's this roundabout way to say, Hey, this guy's professional, but I had to jump through a lot of hoops to get there. Yeah, it's all like a journey that kind of setting you up for where you're at now. But uh, I want to talk a little bit about your neighborhood specifically, uh, the Russell neighborhood. For people that don't know, it's about a 20 square block neighborhood bordered by like uh, I-84 in the north, uh, Halsey, right, in the south, south, and then like 122nd to 142nd? 48. 148th or so. 
All right. And or if, if you've ever been to Gateway Green, just like go east like 20 blocks or so, and you'll be at the at the western edge of the Russell neighborhood if you haven't been out there. So I wonder if you could describe your neighborhood, though, like what it's like to, to live and sort of be there. How would you describe it to someone who's never never walked or biked or been there? It's a very quiet neighborhood. I'll start there. It's like you wouldn't think it's East Portland. It's very it's kind of like one of those pockets that exists of like this can't be real <laughs> I like to put it but it's also this place single family single story homes mostly right poor tree canopy I'll say that great connectivity in terms of sidewalks there is some gaps that need to be filled mm-hmm. a lot of ADA concerns in terms of like intersections but we're seeing improvements right in terms of ramps and curb ramps and things like that but it's a community that I'll be very honest, like, I think I was the first black person ever to move on my street. I know I was the first black homeowner in the house I'm in. Like, there was the original owner, the people I bought it from, and then myself. And that was a, that's a huge deal, because I know a lot of folks don't get an opportunity to be, to do, to be homeowners. Mm-hmm. I know my mom, she didn't get a chance to. She just inherited my grandparents' house, right? And so, like, I always often say I'm privileged and blessed because I was able to buy my home. How old am I this year? At 34. But that must have been wild because you came from a place in Houston that was a lot of the the place you grew up that was like predominantly black. You were in black spaces. Everybody looked, I mean, you get to Portland and it's kind of the other end of the spectrum, right? In terms of that. (laughs) Yeah. But I think, you know, you're right. I went to all black school district. I didn't have my first white teacher until I was in the 10th grade. I didn't have another white teacher again until I was in the 11th grade. And those were the only two white teachers I had. All of my teachers were black men and women, primarily women. And, you know, I I move up here and I'm in this space. I kind of feel like, and part of me feels bad because my son is missing out on all of this enrichment. You know, we, we see it as, I see it as enrichment, not just culture, because it's one thing to learn about these things in a in a classroom setting, but it's another thing to be immersed in it. The music, the smells, the sights, the sounds, the storytelling. All of these things are now, you know, pop culture and things like that. But that was just normal to me. And sometimes I think about my son in this environment, knowing that, like, our community is so broken up and spread out and it's not a big population and his neighbors to the left and the right and in front of him don't look like him. How is that impacting his development? But also, how is that impacting his development so that he can be a leader? Because I often say, I do great things, sure, fine, but it's in pursuit of a better world for him. He's going to be the one because he's sitting back absorbing all of the things. He's with me. I think this is the first time he has not come with me on something like this because he normally sitting right next to me absorbing or getting on my nerves saying, I'm bored. Can I have your phone? No, listen. Mm. Yeah, I hear you. <laughs> Actually, I talked when I interviewed you once for the for the website. I think your your son was kind of in the background or something like that. And you're, you're like apologizing for it. I was like, no, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> so kind of, kind of on that note, uh, one thing that, that stood out to me as I sort of did a little bit of research before talking to you today was uh, I heard on a um, a podcast recently when you were you were describing and tell me if I'm wrong here but you were describing like your experience at Portland State when you were getting your community development degree, um, and it sounded to me like the things you were learning in those classes 
uh, about displacement, about how how cities are built, how how land use patterns happen sometimes intentionally, things like, you know, food deserts, segregations, land use, policy, all that stuff. Um, it sounded to me like it, you were saying that it had kind of like this visceral impact on you, like like it, it, it helped you understand. It was like this cathartic thing where you started to realize, dang, that was like my life in Houston. And it kind of dawned on you the impacts. And then there you are learning about it in a classroom. Did I hear that right? Is that kind of like how that happened? I mean, you see this bald head? I lost all my hair. Just obsessively stressing about it. Like I, the fact that you learn about these things and how they had an impact on your life, it had yeah. that impact on you. Yes. Wow. Like, and it still does. I'm, I mean, I, I don't know how else to say this, but as a black person, once you know, you can't unknow. Mm. And once you are tuned in and you know about things, you view the world differently. You see it for what it is. And I, I'm not shy about calling things out, especially now, because how are we going to get better as a society, as a world, if we don't? Right. My goal is how do we teach? Well, number one, let's fi- follow Maya Angelou's lead. Tell the childhood babies the truth. All the truth. So that they can work together to find solutions, not only for themselves, but for their children. Because you got to remember that cycle goes on. I think we often get t- caught in our own web of our mortality and we only think about where we are in the world, not really fully thinking about we have to pass this stuff on Mm. and what does that look like if we if my son is 30 years old well 34 years old and we're still talking about you know it's not a theory critical race right and how it how it impacts this actually fact because a lot of us have had to live that life and have been on the, the wrong side of it if he's 37 and he's still having to teach my his son my grandson or grandchildren that we failed miserably. We should be at a better place by then. And if he's still uh, organizing and pushing and yelling and screaming about the conditions in his neighborhood. Right. I mean, what does that say about us and what we we have done to prepare them? Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, that's deep thinking about that class at, at PSU and then not only that, but you're living in the Russell neighborhood, which I was looking at it on a map, but there's two streets in that whole neighborhood that really go through the whole entire Yep. Block. San Rafael and, and, like, and Sacramento. That's it. So that's not great from like a, I've heard you talk about, you know, how important it is to make it a 15 minute neighborhood and all this kind of stuff. And that's not, it's going to be hard to do that unless you drive, which. Well, I mean, so. e-bikes are the thing now. No, I hear you. Oh no, I definitely We We see that. a lot of uh, bike share and scooter share out there. Yeah. Is a new expansion of bike town yep. hitting, hitting your neighborhood now? I, I don't think it's hit my neighborhood, but it's. You see some of the bikes mm. as far, because I know the, the at least right now, the station I can see is at 102nd and Halsey, right at Gateway. Mm-hmm. Um, but you start to see more and more bikes parked and locked further down as you go. But you can, I mean, the neighborhood is nice. And that's that's one thing I will say in, in stark contrast to my neighborhood. When I was growing up, we had, I mean, I don't, we, we called them crackheads, but. Like, that's what we had in our neighborhood. We had pimps. We had hustlers. We had shootings. I mean, you name it, we grew up in it. And I, it's it's sometimes it's hard for me to talk about, but not with my partner, because she grew up here. She grew up in Medford. She's a black woman. 
but it's Medford. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And she also often tells me, man, you grew up in a hostile environment. I can see how that shaped you. And I was like, yeah. I was like, you know, it teaches you about people. Like when you grow up in that kind of situation, not knowing who you can trust and who you can, it's like that carries. Even to this day, I I I don't keep a lot of people around me. I keep a small, tight-knit circle of friends. I, you know, try to stay to myself because you never know who's got it out for you. That's, that's, that's. You're going to need that sixth sense for uh, if you get elected to Metro Council, maybe, because it'll entering the more political realm, knowing who you can trust will be even more important than, you know, than yeah. before. Absolutely. Absolutely. But uh, my, I'm, I'm thankful because, again, at nine years old, what I knew versus what my son knows, mm. stark contrast. He's getting to grow up in a, a neighborhood he takes pride in. He loves it. He doesn't want to leave. He's like, Daddy, I'm never leaving. I, I, I'm going to stay here forever. And I'm like, if, if you so choose to, right? And if you get elected Metro, it'll, it'll maybe be a little bit better when he, as he grows up, too. The neighborhood will be even better. The, yeah. the, the place that he grows up will be even better. So uh, if you do get elected, you'll be the second black man on Metro Council. Is, do you care about that? Is that a thing for you? Do you think representation matters at that level? Absolutely, it matters. I mean, we got to see more leadership that looks like that. How do you give communities hope? How do you inspire, right? Like, that's the goal of not only sitting in those positions, but you never know who you're going to touch. And I think as of the deadline, I didn't have an opponent, so I, I think I'm it. Is that right? No opponent. I should stop saying if. <laughs> no. Yeah, I think I think that's it. Well, boy, I guess I I guess I uh, made a little mistake in my my preparation. Then I didn't even realize that. Yeah, nobody well, nobody hopped in, and so. Oh wow! Okay. Well, yeah. congratulations, uh, <laughs> Councillor Simpson. Not not quite. We we will call it elect, right? <laughs> okay. I, I won't right. I won't celebrate just yet. We got to make right. wait till May eighteenth. But you're right. Representation does matter. Um, I know for me. Ed Washington was it, right? I had an opportunity to chat with Mr. Washington about, you know, he gave me his blessing. He said, you know, go forth and be great, young man. And that's what I intend to do. I know often these positions, again, even in my day job at Oregon Walks, and I'm like giving input on the RTP or MTIP or even sitting on ODOT Region 1 Act, anything, I'm often the only black person in the room. And that is a problem. Because then you're expected to answer for and be the end-all, be-all for issues within the black community. And that's just not how shit works. I'm sorry. I live differently than the next household. And the next household lives differently than that household. And you have to open up. That's what inclusivity means. Open up these processes first to those who are underserved and vulnerable. Because those experiences need to be lifted up first. Because you take care of them, inherently everybody else will benefit. Yeah, and in these last few years, we have seen from the government agencies in the region um, a, a much stronger attempt to, you know, reckon with, like, racial justice. I mean, at one point, the the PBOT, the, the Portland Transportation Bureau, they said their goal was to be anti-racist. So mm-hmm. that was going even a bit further than some of the other agencies. So you've served on all these different committees, Metro, Peabot. You've done tons of work. 
really closely with these government agencies. I'm just curious from your perspective, like uh, what, what's your assessment of the job they've done in these last two, three years here that this has been such a, a really, you know, top of mind issue? There's always room for improvement. I will say, you know, it took us decades to get to the point where we needed to recognize there needs to be a better job. And as we employ and do better, like you said, there's been a stronger effort, sustaining that effort, building on those engagement opportunities, building relationship. Metro is the glue that binds our jurisdictions together, right? But they also are the ones who have the systems approach and looking at everything. Like no one project is a project on its own. It's connected. It's linked into an entire system. And I think that that's where people, we, we have an opportunity to engage with folks. For me, that's what I want to do because, and I know they can do it. Case in point, the get there uh, transportation measure. Mm-hmm. You sat on like the main committee that helped put that together and unfortunately didn't pass. pass. Right, yeah. right. But when I was at Rosewood, we had a, Right before COVID, we held an open house where there was about eight different languages being translated. Imagine doing that on a quarterly basis, engaging with our non-native English-speaking and refugee and immigrant communities. About Metro, these are some of, again, you got to remember, our highest users of transit, park space, green space, things like that having them be involved in a way where you're not just asking them for things, but you're educating folks. And I think that that's the gap we need to fill so that future measures like that can pass so they can see like, oh, okay, now we, I see why I need to support this because the last measure, when it didn't pass, it bumped us back to square zero. And we know that there's a lot of work to be done on those high crash corridors. Yeah, yeah. And I, when I talked to you about uh, I talked to you on for the site in an interview a bit ago, and this is before the measure uh, didn't get supported, before the measure had failed. And you said even at that time, uh, quote, the journey uh, is more important, is often more important than the destination. And I think that's what you were talking about, right, was mm-hmm. the way people came together to craft that measure and sort of the way Metro and everybody else kind of went about it. Um, it was there were more people of color on those committees, right? Is is what I understood from 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 seeing it evolve. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like I mean, you kind of answer one of my questions I was going to ask. It's like sort of lessons learned from that, but it sounds like that ended up being true in your mind, even though it didn't pass. You, do you feel like the process that went on kind of at least lifted things up a bit for the next time? Exactly. Like now we know again, we reach out to those community-based organizations again, right? COVID-depending, because we don't know what that thing is going to do. I know masks are off, and people are like, woohoo, which, you know, I get it. We've been cooped up for two, over two years. I get it. Um, and we've lost a lot of folks. I know in my case, I've lost my grandmother. I've lost a cousin. I've lost, you know, not COVID-related, my dad, my stepdad, excuse me, and it, it's heartbreaking because, at least in the case of my cousin and my grandmother, I, I'll never forget it. It was the week we found out about George Floyd. So we found out about George Floyd that Thursday. Uh, my cousin Kevin, he contracted COVID that Wednesday, and he was dead by Friday. And uh, it, it it still hurts. I, I, I still grieve over it. I, I'll be very honest. Hmm. Um, That's a lot to lose. Yeah. 
And on your on your uh, campaign website, you say, uh, you know, if you're elected to Metro Council, you will. Um, uh, let's. He says, uh, as a black man, I will bring my lived experience to ensure that Metro works for everyone. Is there other things on Metro that you're looking forward to working on, issue wise? Transportation measure number one. We got. We have to modernize our system. We have to create alternative modes of transportation. I don't know. Again, I think I. I think I have the space to talk about this because of my military background. Oil dependency is a national security issue. Think about the affordability for folks uh, prior to all of this, those hovering or at or below the poverty line and how they're feeling the pinch now. Yeah, and speaking of affordability, one of the big things that Metro has um, responsibility of is not just, you know, obviously transportation and land use planning is a big one, but another one in there is like housing affordable housing and just housing in general, uh, they're making a lot of decisions about where housing uh, could go, where it can't go. Obviously, they control the urban growth boundary as well. And I'm just curious, you know, if you've thought about that issue. And, and you know, I'm sure you know that, like, the where housing goes has a direct impact on, like, bikeability and walkability, right? Because as soon as trips get above, you know, two and a half, three miles, people don't ride bikes. They are jumping in their cars. But the big question is, you know, as the population grows, um, where, you know, actually, I, I asked a friend of mine who is a, a real housing expert, his name's uh, Michael Anderson, uh, just to give me some information about what, what Metro's working on housing-wise. So he, he was pointing out that um, the region needs like 225,000 more homes by 2040. And that's directly related to affordability, of course, because as people come here, there's not enough places to buy, the bidding wars start. So... You know, as you start to think about being on Metro Council and and being involved with decisions, actually, Metro is right now updating the regional transportation plan. There's a there's a whole chapter in there about you know uh, some of these things, and they're they're going to be making some decisions about this. So it's really relevant. I'm just curious from your perspective, you know, where should that housing go? So if we're talking dense housing, for sure, within range of transit. We, we need folks, and when I say transit, not, you know, every 30 minutes, we talking frequent service, 7 to 15-minute headways. So get it as close as, as close as possible to existing transit and maybe build more transit if it's not. Yeah. There you go. Um, in terms of the single-family housing that we're, we, we need, because we need all types of housing models. We need more home ownership opportunities. We need to find available lots within the urban growth boundary. I know when I did my study at, at, at uh, uh, Rosewood, the actual site they sit on is six and a half acres. And we did some design um, in there that included not only dense housing model types, but also single family incorporated in there. And I know you said, what was that number? 225,000 by 2040 mm-hmm. in the Portland metro area. It's doable. It's doable within the urban growth boundary. Um, I'll, I, I don't think about, well, when I think about the urban growth boundary in region one, I think about how the fires have impacted folks as far as Damascus and Boring, right? If we begin to build and cut down the hinterland, that is the buffer to protect us as a city. And we begin to build on that. We're essentially setting up families to fail by moving them for that far out there number one mm. 
but then too in a in a situation where they're in a fire zone in harm's way and we're having to evacuate or they're losing everything hmm. right so you don't see so, so i'm hearing you right you, you definitely wouldn't want to you wouldn't be open to supporting an expansion of the urban growth boundary to fit more housing necessarily it's not that simple to you right unless it's smart growth right and and, and we're talking about smart in terms of equitable meaning we're close in we're close enough to resources or to transit or to job opportunities where it makes sense right but if we're just talking about building to build no nah. well i think that's where the that's where the debates will happen is you know who who decides on what the definition what the definition is of makes sense right mhm mm that that could be that could be part of the gray area that that you're discussing well i mean and and that's the thing about it we're a council so i'm anticipating and hoping to work with my council as well as staff to you know like look at real solutions if we need to expand where does it make sense to do so what's the the environmental impacts it's going to have on the surrounding communities and the ecosystem if it makes sense then we go ahead with it if it doesn't and it, you know one of those measures fail measurements fail then we don't. Speaking of whether or not things uh, make sense, you've been an outspoken uh, critic of um, ODOT's I-5 Rose Quarter project. Um, and since you worked in the construction trade, I'm really curious to get your thoughts about this this tension. I mean, I know your construction job at Colas was like a real fundamental part of your life, right? It, it helped you buy your first house. It was like a real important uh, thing for you. So I'm curious if, if, you know, how you sort of weigh or think about the fact that these freeway expansion mega projects, you know, when the DOTs are saying that we really must do them, one of the things they put out to the community is saying, look at all the jobs we're going to create. Yeah. And, it's, and especially these days, I think we've seen even more of this, you know, look at all the jobs we're going to have to, you know, black community that's been displaced by these freeways and stuff like that. How does that weigh in your mind? Obviously, these freeway expansion projects, you know, one actually recently was at Metro Council. Yep. They voted to support it, uh, support some planning of one of them. How did, how will you sort of weigh both of those needs for jobs and for sensible transportation projects? That's a good question. And I'm, you know, I, I wrangle with that daily, honestly. Like, it's, there's days where I'm just like, you know, we need folks get to get to work. I don't know if you, been out to East Portland, seen the, the the violence that's happening on our streets. We need to give our young folks some opportunities. That's one way of doing it. But then I also think about, well, how do we take a road like, I don't know, say 82nd Avenue? If we invest at that level of investment in a, in a arterial, the development potential would last beyond the project of a freeway expansion so you mean uh, one of the ways around that would be to uh, impress upon the dot's that uh, freeway expansions aren't the only way to get really good jobs exactly like you you can talk about the flat work that needs to happen um, in terms of like active transportation bike lanes things like that but then what happens behind that land use development businesses housing things like that like continued growth Right. But then also what happens behind that maintenance? Yes. Maintenance on both ends of the spectrum. But I feel like you can employ more folks on an arterial like that 
over a longer period of time than on a freeway expansion project, which, by the way, already ripped wealth out of black families. Because a lot of the families I'm going to be serving in District 1 were displaced and moved out east. So now you want to, like, expand on the idea of displacing them after you've ripped away their generational wealth and they have nothing. And then buy them back into the system that, oh, you can get your wealth back up with this project. But what's the opportunity? And I'm not opposed to getting people to work. Look, I, I support union workers because my mom, still a union president down in, in uh, Houston, local 262 TWU. She will get on my butt if I take jobs out of people, take food off of people's tables. Right. That's my value. But I know that there's other jobs and work to be done in our communities to make them whole that we're missing the opportunities on. And you build a lane on a freeway, it'll clog, especially considering we see an increase in population over the, you know, the 2035 comprehensive plan. I'm sure we're going to outpace, the, you know, what they expect folks showing up here. Right. So when they show up here, they show up with their cars. What happens then? Oh, we got space. Then the lanes clog up and then we're back at square one again. That's why I'm in support of not only, you know, making sure those arterial, well, those freeways work for where they are now, but building out our transportation system completely to include those alternative modes of transportation. We have to invest heavily in public transit and in, in active transportation infrastructure. Yeah, it's it's interesting though because there are that to go back to that Metro Council vote on this planning funding for the Interstate Bridge Replacement Project. I like to call it the oh, the, yeah. the Portland to Vancouver I five Freeway Expansion Project, yep. but they call it the Interstate Bridge Replacement. Um, just to go back to that, that was that was just in January. The well, vote, you, t- you said Rose Quarter, so I have a different take on the on the I five. Yeah, yeah. So I guess I'm I-5 switching here. So just yeah. specifically on that one that that they that they voted to you know basically give the go ahead to the DOT to go ahead and spend. $36 million more in planning of this, right? That's just for the consultants and the open house, you know, managers and stuff like that. That was a 5-1 vote on Metro. There are other counselors I know that I think share, like I would just say, share your perspective on freeways more broadly in terms of like whether or not we should have them. But in, in the case of one of the counselors, they voted in favor of this planning money. So there's that, that's that really weird nuance with these projects and how just sort of insidious they can be for politicians uh, to decide on. You know, you can have your values about the freeway project, but then the way these things come up and the way that they're able to continue to kind of go down the field mm-hmm. can be tricky. I'm just curious. I know you were aware of that vote. Uh, did you think in your mind, you know, would you have supported that or would you, you, would you have uh, joined Councilor Mary Nolan and said no? So... Where I'm at with the I-5, I, I sit in a different place on the I-5 bridge. I know it needs to be replaced. That's number one. It's outdated. We need to build into the future. Now, I'm not, I'm not about over-engineering and over-building something. We build it to scale. So we still get people to work, but we need a new bridge. I think that, you know, Councilor Nolan is right, but also I think about, like, well, how do we get folks opportunities right now? Because right now that is going to be one of the biggest sources of income and jobs for a lot of people of color, a lot of people learning new skills and getting into the 
right into the trades and then getting into the the job market. So it's a you, like you said, it's a fine balance, and I think it's our job as metro counselors to not only help this part of the region because that is a chain that mm-hmm. moves our goods, mm-hmm. it moves our people, but also for me again, national security. We need to have a functioning bridge that works into the future. I you know I would have voted to continue the planning. Right? What is and in that planning, I would have asked to identify, are you including pricing options? Are you including a climate assessment, an ecological assessment? Uh, are we making sure the, that we are also including the variables of public transit? So in general, you think you can trust the Oregon Department of Transportation on something like this? To me, it, it often comes down to trust. Um, you know, I've heard you say you believe the bridge should be replaced. I, that's what I hear from everyone. I think everyone agrees the bridge should be replaced. That's that's not, I think, where the debate is. I think uh, I wonder if if you are concerned that they actually want to expand, you know, five miles of freeway along with replacing the bridge. And does it bother you that they, or do you think that they purposely sort of uh, show the project as being about a bridge when it's really about something much larger? You know, it remains to be seen. I, I I don't want to start to speculate when I'm not there yet, but I can tell you, um, people are watching. I'm watching closely. Uh, I can tell you right now, again, I hope they're not doing that because that would be a real disservice and, distrust within the community and that's a, some hell of a backlash to take on i hear you i want to switch gears uh, real quick to 82nd avenue you were part of a coalition of advocates that helped push that over the finish line in terms of getting uh, a bunch of funding together and getting odot and the city of portland to the table to have it transfer from state to uh, local control so now that sort of the planning phase of like what that's going to mean what where that big injection of funding what's it going to do to 82nd now that that's underway i wonder if um you know you have any you can share any thoughts about what you think might be possible for the future of 82nd um what do you think the community you know do you think the community should push for something you know, radically different than what's there now? Do you think the community would support a lot less space for driving on 82nd? What are your thoughts on on the design? So I think, and this is where we are as Oregon Walks, because we have been tasked uh, to do the reimagining of 80, excuse me, of 82nd Avenue. Um, we have to, first and foremost, we always say this, and I say this, it has to be a community-led process, Right. We need to listen to community on what they want because I don't live off. I've, I, sure, I visit 82nd. I go to Fovon all the time. I have to go see my see my folks over at Apano, see my boy Duncan. Uh, right? I've, I'm a visitor and I play. But there are folks who actually reside there that should have the most input on how that works. And I think that uh, if the community says, well, we want – frequent service transit and we want bike lanes and we want improved crossings and lighting that's what should be provided and then if they say we want safety by design and we want to uplift community culture and we want to include arts and vibrancy to this area that should be included and if they say we want more dense affordable housing along here and we want businesses to support our lives that should be 
part of that conversation. I think I think what's going to happen is people are going to say they want all those things, <laughs> <laughs> and it's going to be the challenge of everyone, advocates and elected officials, to figure out, you know, which how to how to uh, you know prioritize those things and which things can actually because I think they're all going to ask for all that stuff, but then if they look at the drawing and it shows you know, a lot less space for driving their car, they may, I don't know, what's going to be the answer to that, right? They're not going to want to give more space and sort of start tearing buildings down. Right, uh, right. And so it's not going to be possible necessarily to fit all that stuff, better bus service, better bike access, you know, that well, sort of thing. The, the the bus line that runs down 82nd is the most utilized bus line route in the system. It makes sense for it to have a bus only lane, bus, you know, BRT. It makes sense. Yeah. Um, in terms of like what active transportation looks like on that road, it remains to be seen. We need to look at all design options. And I think we have an opportunity with so much funding just sitting there for this project. We we should be able to do that. We should be able to throw the kitchen sink at everything and see what sticks. Yeah, I hear you. Okay. You are the Oregon Walks Executive Director. So I did want to talk about some of the pedestrian related issues that are going on. Um, in, in the year or so that you've been ED, it's been one of the most dead, one of the deadliest years on history in history for people walking and getting, getting hit and killed in traffic. Um, I just wonder, um, you know, it's also like you mentioned before, you know, gun violence is at an all time high. You know, I just wonder what it's like to be an advocate for walking at a time when people are just afraid to like leave their house. People are afraid and, Walking is like, in some ways, I mean, it's the most vulnerable thing you can do in some ways, putting yourself out there with your feet. What that's, what has that been like for you as the leader of Oregon Walks in such a, just such a violent year? You know, it's been, so, and I'll go back to this one. So when we did 82nd Avenue, um, when we did all that work around there, we had lost two folks, um, I won't say their names because I, I have not gotten permission from their families, but we lost two folks in a span of two weeks. This was a year ago now, yeah, April, April last year. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it was less than 200 feet between both. Yeah. Right. Basically the same intersection. Right. Wigan and Alberta. Yeah. Right. I, I, I think when that first happened, I mean, my, my, my heart sank to my, my, my bowels like it was just like what's going on here like where's the urgency on making these streets safer and we actually went out and did some observations uh, a couple of our board members uh scott kotcher um went out with his uh came out with me with his uh radar gun and we shot radar down that road uh we looked at some of the conditions it was only one side of the road lit we actually almost saw a near miss a few near misses while we were just out making observations. And I just sat back and I looked and I said, wow, God damn, something needs to be done about these roads. I get disheartened sometimes. I, I'll be, I mean, how can you not, you know, but I also know that if I don't speak up, if I don't get out there and do stuff, if I don't say anything, if I don't give people safe access to go routes to go walk, you know, through our neighbor walks program, our we walk program. Um, what are we doing as advocates? Right. We, we, we should be able to go toe to toe and at bat to fight for the things that we need, but we also need to have this component of us 
where we're softer and we come across to the community. When I say softer, like, like cushion wise, like, and say, Hey, like we're having this event. Like we did a walk for Ahmad on the 23rd, which, you know, that brother lost his life and he was buying his own business. He was just trying to exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd written down on here. If, if it's frustrating to you that I feel like whenever I see you in the media, it's it's tragic yeah oh my gosh stuff is really bad yeah and you have this really serious look on your face because you're sad you're genuinely sad but it also fits the moment because it's usually because they call you and want to talk to you when people are dying so you've been a busy man these last couple years and i just thought is it frustrating to you that you don't get a chance to share like this positive vision of what what could a great walking city look like what what else could we do well number one i will say this Every transportation agency and bureau needs to have age-friendly policies when it comes to transportation. Age-friendly meaning our elders, our youth, folks with mental and physical disabilities have connectivity and access, safe access to move around or roam however they need to, whether that's by uh, ADA device, foot, cycle, right? You put that level of language into policies as we roll out in the future, you'll start to see community. And that's what I mean by going to fight, because what we're looking for is infrastructure equity in communities where we don't see it. And so, yes, I do get pissed off. I get angry because I'm like, come on. And then you start to see things change. So I don't know if you, when the last time you've been down Halsey backside. Been a while. There will soon be continuous, at least on the north side of Halsey, sidewalk from 102nd all the way down through to 162nd. So you bring up Halsey because it's been some progress of late, is what you're saying. It has been some progress of late. City's putting, they have the outer Halsey safety project, right? They're putting Mm -hmm. several million bucks into it, doing sidewalks and probably a few crossings, stuff like that. And guess what? Hmm. Even though it's not complete, you see people walking on them. You see people engaging with the infrastructure. You see more people biking now. People of color. And so I'm like... Imagine that. You got a safer street. People come out and use it. And, and for me, that's, my whole mindset is this. Like, again, no matter what you're building, you're putting people to work. Raymar does, gets a lot of work through fixing our streets. Oversight committee. On that flat work. Affordable electric. Same with the signals and stuff like that, right? People are getting to work. And there's more of that work to be done. We have a lot of curb ramps that need to be redone. There's opportunity for some minority contractors to prove themselves with these smaller projects so that they can learn the business and go after and bid after bigger jobs. Like we're talking about equity now. We're talking about worker equity and business equity. That's where we need to push and move towards because again, we have to create complete streets, complete streets where we're cre- that are embedded within age-friendly communities. You, you build out that, that level of infrastructure, and in that way, I would love to see how a program like Vision Zero works then. Mm. Because right now, Vision Zero is operating on like a Mac 89, <laughs> right? This, that's our infrastructure out there, right? Until you upgrade the, the, the actual hardware. All right implement the software now and see what happens. Yeah. If you can, if you can, uh, in these next several years, as you see, you're sort of like 
scope of your leadership opportunities expand, if you're able to connect your lived experience, uh, the different things you've done, even professionally, uh, especially the jobs one, and bring that into the safer infrastructure one, because you know how it is uh, when you're in politics, jobs, jobs, jobs. If you can do that, if you can connect those things with the other experiences, man, that would be really great. That would be really exciting. I mean, you I, know, make at the next Metro funding measure attempt that, that you all are going to take, which is going to be fun. We'll be talking more about that as it comes up. Maybe there's like a, a real intentional specific like jobs component, you know? Yeah. No, I community. But the right kind of project. Right, right. right. Not expanding things, but making them better for different things. More paths, more place to walk. Yeah. Think about. You got to, again, when improvements happen in the right of way, what often follows? Land use development, improvements, things like that. Buildings start to be erected. That's carpentry. That's everything, right? That's more work. Move on to the next one. Move on to the, you, you see how the, the developments are going up. And within a year, year and a half, they're done. And they're moving on to the next one. Like, that's the type of progress we need to see in our communities out in outer East Portland and in uh, East Multnomah County. And th it's happening. Go to Rockwood. Mm. Rockwood is, is developing quickly. Now, the other piece around all of this that I think that we have to acknowledge is how do we not displace folks? Well, yeah, there's no, we've done that all the way to the edge of the city now. There's just a report that came out today saying Portland's the 12th uh, least affordable place in the country. Yeah, my mom asked me, how the hell do I afford to live here often? Yeah, <laughs> housing housing costs gone, went up 30% last year, and cost of living, you know, I mean, it's not obviously not keeping up. Right. So you're, you're right. And I mean, you know, well, I don't, the answer to that, I don't know if we have time to get into the answer for that other than I would assume, like, what would, what would you say? How would, how should we approach that? Because you're right, definitely with, even with like the 82nd Avenue design, mm -hmm. pro think people are worried about that already. There's, so there are some solutions out there. I don't know if you've uh, heard of the uh, uh, purpose-built communities. Mm -mm, no. T jot this down. There's this community. It's called uh, East Lake, but it's ran by the East Lake Foundation. Got an opportunity to go check it out. It's in Atlanta. Uh, community much like Rockwood, outer East Portland, very depressed, under in, underinvested in. Uh, some philanthropists, uh, Tim Cousins and others, had a golf course that they would frequent that was in the poor neighborhood, kind of like Glendevere, right? <laughs> Only Glendevere is a public course. Uh, and they would go and golf, but they would also see across, across the greens this rundown community. And they say, well, why is that? There's something we can do. And it took this level of back and forth engagement with community and community groups before they finally set terms, but they started development. You go there now, it's one of the most desired places to live in Georgia. And they have set up policy where they serve the community that was there first, right? So I got an opportunity to go look at some of their housing that was mixed income housing. A third was market rate, a third was partially subsidized, and a third was fully subsidized. And you didn't know who was on what. Those apartments look just like what we build out here at market rate. And people were living, I think the only thing I, thing I did not see out there that I wish I saw was sidewalks and crossing. But other than that, I'm talking about they had a school um, in Drew Charter that was like Hogwarts for black kids. They were walking around with their blazers on. With the, I mean, it, it was a full steam school, the whole basement. 
area was, you name it, they had labs, they had music rooms, they had this, they had that. They had a grocery store, Publix, that served that community that was operated by that community. They had Boys and Girls Club, YMCA. I mean, they had all these things. They built a community and they stabilized it. We can do the same thing. We have wealthy dollars here. We have dollars here. Right? I think it takes a little bit of the moral courage to actually do this work. Because if you really wanted to have a better world and better society, you take care of folks. Because oftentimes when folks are cared for and their their basic needs are met, and then they can elevate and, and go do other things, they will do it. They will go spend the money. They will get out and shop. They will get out and have fun and, and, and frequent things. And I think that that's the connection we need to make with those that have so that they can understand those without. You start to provide more opportunities for them to have and give them space to do that, they will then be a part of the system fully and everybody's happy because guess what? Business is thriving because they are spending, they're happy, they have the things that they need for their lives. I can tell you that because a couple years ago, prior to me buying my home, I was homeless. Didn't have anywhere to stay. If I didn't have a mentor to look out for me, I would have still been living out of my car. And to buy a house, to go from homeless to having a job to having a house within six months, the stability. And I, all, I love using myself as a model because I can't speak for anybody else. But that stability, that, that peace of mind, that presence, it, it's nothing like it. It's gold. My son, I never have to worry about my son not having somewhere to, to sleep home that's home he's comfort all of his creature comforts are there i'm able to keep the roof and the lights on i'm able to go do more things because guess what nobody's raising our rent (laughs) yeah our mortgage is set we just pay to pay it and go all of our bills are stable we pay it and go we have more money now to go and do things that he wants to do or get involved with that's what i want to see happen for more folks i want people to be able to have the same opportunities i have and I love how you were able to take like a question or something about a project or a policy and take it all the way down to like the person and the people mm-hmm. and how those things can impact each other. Yeah. So I hope you get a chance to, it, it, you got your work cut out for you, mm-hmm. but you know, I hope you get a chance to, to, to do it and to do it well uh, on Metro Council. So um, Ashton, thank you so much for sharing. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. I look, I'm happy to be here. Um, thank you for y'all support. Um, it's been, it's been nice to know that we have a, a paper that's dedicated to active transportation. Um, I'm oftentimes you, you keep your ear to the ground on a lot of things. I, I mean, there's only so many things you can keep your eye on the ball at one time, but I know that if I miss something, I can always go to bike Portland and there's an article there. And I may not agree with, you know, the article itself, but at least it's linked to the original content and I can go back and judge for myself. So I appreciate that. Thank you. You're welcome, Ashton. Thank you very much. Go out and get some of this nice spring sunshine. I'm going to try to. (laughs) I got to go cook dinner. (laughs) That was Oregon Walk's executive director and Metro Councilor-elect Ashton Simpson. 
be sure to check our show notes for links and resources mentioned in this episode. The Bike Portland podcast is a production of Pedaltown Media Incorporated and is made possible by listeners just like you. If you're not a subscriber yet, please become one today at bikeportland.org support. You can listen to more episodes and find out how to subscribe at bikeportland.org podcast. Our music for this episode was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Elitu, the podcast maker. Find your own free music podcast over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. I'm your host, Jonathan Maz. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the streets.